Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, I'd ask you to stop and pause for a minute. And have you noticed just how many subscriptions you have for things like news or music or articles or magazines or entertainment or photography or digital services? If you're like me, I kind of have to regularly survey just how many of these things have I signed up for? And sometimes when I thought it was just a single fee, it turns out being a monthly fee. Well, it seems that this whole thing of the membership economy is everywhere, and it is. So today we're going to talk about what this thing really is, how it works, and how you can apply those concepts to your business, regardless where you are or the size of the business. So my guest today is Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Robbie is the founder of Peninsula Strategies, and she's authored two best-selling books. One is The Membership Economy. Find your super users, master the forever transaction, and build recurring revenue. And then we have a brand new book called The Forever Transaction, How to Build a Subscription Model So Compelling Your Customers Will Never Want to Leave. And that's exactly what I want. She's coined this term, the membership economy, which is being used widely. Needless to say, Robbie's been featured in a whole bunch of outlets like CNN and NBC and NPR, and obviously talked to thousands of people in corporations, associations, and universities. Her clients include companies like Netflix, the Wall Street Journal, Microsoft, as well as dozens of smaller venture-backed companies. So you can find out more about her from her website at Robbie Kelman, K-E-L-L-M-A-N, Baxter.com. Robbie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Wanda. I am super excited to have you because I have been noticing this phenomena, and then I get excited that there's somebody who's actually studied it, talked about it, and can tell me how to do it. But before I dive into how, I'm always curious with my guest, what got you started? So how did you get on this journey? What were you seeing? What need were you trying to address? So um, for me, it all started... um, when I, I got laid off while I was on maternity leave, actually the day I got back from my maternity leave where I was a, in product marketing, and I said, okay, I have two kids. I need to be in control of my own career. And um, so I started consulting. And if you're going to be an independent consultant, it's pretty important to have an area of focus um, and one where you can become an expert. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be you know, arms and legs to fill in as needed. So as I started my consulting career, I had in the back of my head, what is something interesting that I could really make my own, become an expert on, and that's big enough that it'll keep me interested and engaged for a long time, but also narrow enough that I can credibly become an expert on it. And I I went through several clients where I was doing general strategy work, and then my fifth client was Netflix, and I fell in love with their business model. There were a bunch of things I liked for a bunch of different reasons. I loved um, that they did one thing really well, professionally created video content delivered with cost certainty, 
in the most efficient way possible. And they were really focused on delivering on that promise to their subscribers. And of course, as a business person, I loved the recurring revenue that they generated um, and the fact that the whole organization was so focused on the entire journey, not just acquisition of new customers, but engagement, how, how those new customers were using the product and then retention, how long they stayed. And as I was falling in love with Netflix and thinking, maybe this is that, I don't know what to call it yet, but this thing is what I want to really study and learn about. People started calling me and saying, hey, we want to be the Netflix of news, of music, of software, um, of bicycles, of dental pain management products. I mean, you name it. And someone wanted to build a subscription around it. And that was where I really started to form my point of view and my framework on what all these organizations had in common and also what had to be unique to each individual business model. It reminds me, listening to you talk about that, reminds me of all the great work that a number of folks have done around the brand promise lately and talking about how much the identity, when you do it well, is tied to that brand. I see myself as somebody who is a Netflix kind of person or whatever the brand is. And then it becomes more than just that brand. You you want a different, you expect more of that brand, I guess, is what I want to say. And that's some of the best of work that's coming out of customer experience as well as out of branding. This sounds very similar, is it? Yeah, it is. I think that the difference between a brand promise and what I call a forever promise, um, what I've seen when I've worked with organizations that have a strong brand promise, is that this promise is really about what the what the customer promises the company, as well as what the company is promising the customer. So sometimes I help organizations figure out what theirs is by saying, think about your best customers and think about what you promise to them. As long as you pay me on a recurring basis, I will continue to find the best way to what? Right? It's, it's almost always about either solving a problem for the customer that is an ongoing problem or helping that customer achieve an ongoing goal. Um, those are really, for, for subscription businesses, it has to be ongoing. And that's another difference between sort of a traditional brand promise, which is any product you buy from us, you know, has these attributes or has this, you know, seal of approval or what have you, versus as long as you need this, we're going to provide it for you in the best way. All right, so let me go back to something else you said that people started calling you were at Netflix and then people started calling you saying, we think we want to be the Netflix of. So is this true that everybody is now beginning to think about this subscription model, this forever promise, the membership economy? Is that, I mean, has this become a phenomena now? Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I was doing this, um, I was working with Netflix. I mean, now it's uh, you know almost twenty years. Uh, my my child from my layoff is uh, twenty. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's it's been a while. And back then, it was random companies that would come to me and they'd say, "Oh, you know, I talked to so and so, somebody that I know, um, or somebody that knew someone at Netflix who mentioned me and said, you know, I heard you're a consultant, and I heard." that you have been working with businesses that have recurring revenue, that, um, 
you know, that have pre, sometimes they called it premium services, um, software as a service, you know, different terms. There wasn't a clear term. And it was really hard for me to find them because it wasn't by industry. Um, it wasn't like every company needs a PR firm. It was, you know, only certain companies that were really thinking this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so back then it was actually, you know, hard to convince somebody that wasn't already convinced. And that's really why I wrote the membership economy to say, look, I think this can apply to almost any business, any nonprofit, any bootstrapped business, any venture-backed business, any big traditional old-school business, as long as you care about the customer relationship, as long as that matters to you, this could work. And today, five years you know, after I wrote The Membership Economy, as you point out, everybody's doing it and everybody gets it. And you know, I don't have to explain to anybody why subscriptions are powerful anymore. The the challenge today is really how do you do it in um, a credible and uh, ethical and uh, successful way? Yeah, certainly. I think anybody who's in business would say, I like the idea that there's a regular cash register ring metaphorically or physically (laughs) every month, my customers are continue to buy, continue to buy, continue to buy. That sounds good. Like from a business model, I like that. So I get why a business would want to do this. The question though is, I think you said it really well is how do I create that promise? So the customer also wants to be engaged because they think they're going to miss something or lose something if they're not continuing to stay engaged. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so great that you brought that up, Wanda, because a lot of companies come to me with, I'm talking to you because I want some recurring revenue. (laughs) So we're going to take the products and services we have, and we're going to slap a subscription price on it, and we're going to get some subscription revenue. And what some organizations don't really focus on enough is why would your customer be excited to move from transactional to subscription? Um, And how how can you justify that subscription pricing? What's the promise you're making to them in exchange for that recurring revenue? Okay. And you said earlier, I like the way you said this, that it's a promise to our best customers. So think about your best customer and what is the best way that you're going to help that customer do and fill in the blank. And that's what your promise becomes. Yeah. Yeah. In in most cases, that is um, how like that's a very good starting point for a forever promise. If a company says, "Hey, we have transactional revenue and we want recurring revenue," your existing happy customers are probably the most likely to be interested in paying more or paying more frequently or more consistently in exchange for more of a smooth ongoing benefit. But actually, subscription pricing, subscription options can work in other places as well. So, so for example, uh, some organizations have subscription as a light touch for new customers. So I'm not ready to buy a Porsche, uh, but I would love to try driving one around for a while. So I'm going to subscribe. You know, Porsche has Passport, which is their subscription model. And what they found is it's a great point of entry for younger younger drivers who've never owned a Porsche before. So it's a, it's a point of entry in some cases. And sometimes the subscription is like the stickiness between different um, purchasing occasions. So for example, Bain and Company, the, the well-known uh, strategy consulting firm, uh, they have a membership 
called the uh, Bain Net Promoter Loyalty System Forum, Bain's NPS Loyalty Forum, uh, where they gather you know, the senior leaders in different organizations around customer-facing activities. So the head of support, the head of customer success, the head of retail, um, the head of customer experience, and they gather periodically to share best practices in their work. And that's a way for Bain to deepen the relationship with their customers so that when it's time to buy a big consulting engagement, they already have a strong connection with the partners and the point of view of Bain. Right. So you think, I mean, there's two ways to think about this. Like, let's take the Bain example. I can imagine, I can see why that's a benefit to Bain. Yes. And I can see why it could become a benefit to their customers. Now, do their customers pay for it or are their customers expecting it for free? How do I draw that line between what's expected for free and what people are willing to pay for? Yeah. So um, (laughs) what's expected to be free? You know, tongue in cheek, I'd say everybody expects everything to be free. Um, So you have to make a case for why whatever you're offering is worth paying for. From a business perspective, if you're thinking of offering a subscription and your goal is to deepen the relationship so that you can enjoy the bigger transaction. So this is what most, let's say most consultants, most professional services providers might be interested in. What I would say is, you want to think about the return on your investment of free. So if I'm going to offer a freemium model, which means some people get it for free forever and other people pay forever, that might be, let's say, I don't know that Bain does this, but if you're an existing customer, client, and you've recently bought from us, it's free for the year. I don't think this is how they do it, but this might be a good model. Um, But if you've never worked with us before, you pay six figures for it. that might work, right? Because they want to bring in their existing clients because they're the happiest and they're the ones that most understand the net promoter system, which is a, you know, a concept started by one of the main partners, Fred Reichold. Um, but if, if that's their only revenue stream, they might say, no, we're going to charge everyone. So for example, Netflix doesn't give anything away for free, uh, although they're, they're starting to experiment now, but generally for the last 20 years, you get a two week free trial and then you start paying. Um, if you're Apple, uh, Apple Plus, right, they might throw in Apple Plus. Like when I bought my new phone, um, I got a free year of Apple Plus thrown in. So in their case, I'm sure they've done the math and there's a good return on investment of giving me a, f- a free subscription. So it's just really important that whatever you're giving away for free has an important role in your bigger business model and that you can measure it or at least it passes the sniff test. Right. Well, and you certainly want the customers that are paying not to feel slighted in some way because they didn't get something for free. All right. So we've gotten away from this. So we've got this notion of the membership economy. Everybody, Porsche, Bain, I mean, now you've convinced me that it's not just consumer goods. It's everybody is looking at some version of this premium engagement model where there's a promise between the company and the customer. We're going to constantly stay engaged in some recurring revenue. Okay, great. Now, why? Why are people so interested? Again, I get why customers are interested in it, or companies are interested in it. Why are customers so excited about this idea? What's this yeah, about for them? Yeah, so it solves an ongoing problem or helps them achieve an ongoing goal. So let's, let's look at some of them. Uh, when I joined Netflix as a customer, which was actually before, um, before I became a, 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 a consultant to them, uh, 
It was because I was tired of, you know, putting a raincoat over my jammies and running down to Blockbuster on a Friday night to get a movie because there was nothing on TV, right? And so that was one problem I had with with Blockbuster. And a second problem I had with Blockbuster was that I always forgot that I had the movies and then I ended up paying, you know, $3 to actually rent the movie and $27 of late fees, right? And so what's the promise with Netflix? Well, it's the widest selection of professionally created video content. So you can always find something you want delivered with cost certainty, no late fees in the most efficient way possible. You know, it was a lot more efficient to go to my mailbox than to go to the corner store. So when you're designing a subscription model, you really have to get clear on what you're promising them. And it has to be against a goal. So for example, if you're a retailer selling clothing, right, and I come in to buy a white blouse because I'm giving a speech, right? I'm not going into the store because I want a white blouse. I'm going to the store because I want to look good for my speech. I'm really going to the store because I want to look professional so that it helps me with my business. And if the store understands that that's what I really want, they could say, hey, Robbie, we're going to make sure you always have clothes in your closet that help you look professional for high stakes engagements, mm-hmm. right? And suddenly I'm like, yeah, I'll pay you. I would, I mean, I'm still trying to find somebody who can really deliver on that because that would be very meaningful to me. And I would pay a premium for that. Um, if you're an interior designer, right, you come in and you make some, you know, we just had this done a couple of years ago. And, you know, it was like, if you give a mouse a cookie, right, we, they came in to do something with my son's room, because he had little baby bunk beds, and he was, you know, six foot two, and he needed a big boy bed. Um, and we ended up, you know, putting a new carpet in all the rooms and painting all the walls. And, you know, it just kind of extends. And what I realized was, I just wanted my house to not look old-fashioned or out of date or or shabby. And if I could pay my decorator an annual fee to just come by periodically, preferably when I'm not there, and figure out what needs to be replaced and just replace it for a fixed price, I would love that. I would sign up for that one. I'd also sign up for the clothes service. It makes me think that maybe we need to do that. I think there would be a lot of professional (laughs) women, especially, who would sign up for that one. All right. So... This is like Clayton Christensen's um, big question: What is the problem to be, or the job to be done? Job to be done. Yeah. Ultimately, this is really what's the problem the customer is trying to solve on an ongoing basis, and how do I provide that service in an efficient, effective, seamless manner that delivers on that promise? Okay. Yeah. So, um, what's what are people getting wrong? Well, I guess I'll ask this one. Give me. You've given me some examples. What are the keys to success? You've talked about the promise itself. You've talked about um, making sure you deliver on that one. You've talked about understanding what customers need. What other things should we be thinking about to make this really successful? Yeah, so you you definitely want to start with a clear promise and a clear customer, right? So what is the ongoing job to be done, to use the Clayton Christensen term or idea, which I love? Um, and who are you doing the job for? So one mistake that a lot of organizations do is they're trying to be all things to all people. So if I, if I walk into McDonald's with my husband and I say, hey there, it's our anniversary, show us to your finest table and bring us your best food, right? They're probably going to laugh. Um, they'll say, well, you know, you can have a Big Mac like everyone else. Or maybe if they're really nice, they'll say you can go down the street because there's a fancy restaurant over there and that might be a better place but they're not going to feel bad that they don't have champagne on the menu or, you know, some kind of fancy, fancy, you know, delectable dish, right? Because they know who they serve. So I think know who your audience is, know what the promises you're making to them, know who you're not making a promise to so you can stay laser focused. 
And then really think about not just the acquisition benefits of your offering. So what are the headline benefits that are going to get someone to sign up with you? That's usually where companies focus is like, what's the reason to buy? But you're going to also want to think about what are the engagement benefits? So what's going to make them stay and make your products and services a habit? And what are the expansion benefits? What are the things that are going to make them want to do more with you over time? Because if you don't figure out those last two kinds of benefits, people are going to leave, you know, you're going to bring them in the front door and they're going to be leaving out the back door and you're going to end up losing money on every new customer. Okay. So I can see that too. I can see how people can come in and out pretty quickly in this sort of membership economy. So talk to me about what engagement benefits. Can you give me some examples of companies who've done this really well? Their engagement benefit is really good. Yeah. Well, we were talking about Netflix. So that's a good example. Um, so there's a couple of things that, that let's just talk about streaming content providers. So the first thing is um, they make it really easy for you to be onboarded. So you join something new, you sign up for something, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking about, I'm gonna, I can always cancel, I can always cancel, right. right? So the company needs to get you to make it a habit right away. So I join Disney Plus because I want to watch Hamilton. And I'm like, I don't like princesses. I'm going to sign up for, for Disney Plus. I'm going to watch Hamilton for $6.99 for the first month, and I'm going to get out of there, right? It's Disney's job not only to show me Hamilton, because that's what I paid for right away and make it easy for me, but they need to surface other benefits so that I relax into the relationship and say, maybe I'll stay a while. So what can they do? They can show me other kinds of content. Um, I know with a lot of streaming services, a key success metric is, are they watching more than one kind of content? Comedies and dramas, movies and documentaries, um, you know, something like that. And then another key element in onboarding for a lot of the streaming companies that builds engagement is getting them to take the app from the phone and getting it to the smart TV, because it's not that fun to watch Hamilton like this, right? You want to watch it on the big screen, the biggest screen you have. So they know that the likelihood of you staying for many months goes way up if you do those two things. So that would be an example of onboarding. And then the other thing that you want to do is have these kind of habit forming offerings so that, you know, they come multiple times a week. So you might have them check in three times a week. You might gamify it and have them feel like, oh, I need to do all these things in order to get status in the community. Um, But those kind of stickiness things. And then you need to surface other benefits so that at the right time in their journey, they understand how they can expand and deepen the relationship with you. So you need to show them that in the experience as part of the subscription. Okay. All right, so I think we can all imagine what the streaming services do. And now I know why everybody's always telling me to download that app that I find annoying. That's I now know exactly where that's coming from. Thank you, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> but um, get me engaged across multiple media, get me into a habit of something I'm going to do regularly. And I notice that there's this routine um, sort of like a quiz that you might fill out or, you know, do this five times in a row and you gain points. There's all those kind of things which are instilling the habit. Can you give me an example about the expansion benefits, but let's move away from streaming media in a completely different area? Sure. Um, Let's say that you're a learning company. Um, Let's say that you provide training. You're B2B and you provide training. Um, you might say, okay, we're going to give you all of these self-service modules, um, video that can help. I guess this is video too. I, maybe I should move away from that. Um, uh, 
what would be a good example? Yeah, stay with that one. There's a learning yeah. model and all these videos yeah. or all these so things is, that you're going to read or watch. Okay. Right. So this is like, you know, how to be whatever, how to be a consultant, how to be better at marketing, how to be a leader, how to um, use Excel, right? And you're going to get to a point where you say, I don't want to do it by myself. I want to coach. Okay. Right. And so there might be something in there where it says, you know, now you've gone through the lessons, you're ready to go create your own plan for your for yourself or for your company. Um, if you'd like a guide, let us know. We have a team of consultants, okay. right? So that would be a very simple way of doing it. Another way of doing it is to have those consultants checking in um, as you're going through the process and say, you know, hey, chatbot Robbie comes in and says, you know, you know, have you thought about these things relating to your subscription model? And they're like, God, I wish real Robbie was here to really help me. And it says in the bottom, you know, click here to work with real Robbie. Um, so that might be a way to expand and deepen the relationship. Um, a weight loss program, Weight Watchers. Right. Um, you can do Weight Watchers digital or Weight Watchers in person, right? Um, the, the most important thing with weight loss, I know, is um, to write down the food to track your food. That is a single, if you want to lose weight, write down every single thing that goes in your mouth and you will lose weight. Uh, 80% greater likelihood of losing weight. Um, so the first thing that they do is they get you writing down your weight and they give you kind of um, inorganic rewards. They say, hey, you're on the right track. Good job. Keep going. Keep making this a habit. They remind you every day and they help you see how many days you've done it. Um, and then at different points in the digital experience, they'll surface the opportunity to go to a live meeting, right? If you want to go to a live meeting, that can be very reinforcing for many people, meet other people like you, have a chance to talk to a leader directly. And so that's unearthed as another way to go deeper. So you don't just have the digital experience, but you also have the physical experience. Okay. I've seen this in a number of subscription models where there will be a question, do you feel like you need help? Mm -hmm. And in which case there's a chat function or a hire somebody to help you or somebody's going to get on and give you some other further advice. So that's an example of an expansion service. So yeah. we're constantly or, looking ways to expand. Yeah. Also on the B2B side, um, you know, there's been this move from customer support to customer success in the world of software. Mm -hmm. Customer support is solve a problem when someone complains. Customer success is anticipate challenges that they may be finding and make sure that they're getting all the value they're paying for. Make sure that they're happy. And so in a lot of these customer success, both in terms of the person who's providing customer success and also in terms of the features that the product team creates in the product itself for optimizing customer success, that's another way of expanding the relationship. So for example, I might sign up for Salesforce because I'm a salesperson and I'm signing up for myself, um, but I'm finding that it's allowing me to track my leads better and I invite my team members to join me. Right. Um, that's another way of expanding it by bringing your colleagues in or bringing your friends in. So that's another way that organizations expand and deepen the relationship over time. All right. So let me see if I can do a decent job of summarizing what is not, as, it sounds simple on the surface, but it turns out there's a lot more to it. That if I'm looking to offer this membership economy or forever transaction, as you describe it, I want to be really clear who my best customers are, who I want to offer this promise to, and what it is that I'm offering to them. What am I going to help them do as a result of being part of this? doing that in a very customer-centric way, in a way that customers would be excited about it. 
Then I want to be clear also who I'm not offering this service to, because that's just as important. So I don't try to be all things to everybody and not make anybody happy. And then I'm looking for ways of getting people engaged so that they're touching not just the one-off transaction, but they're constantly having some touch points with me over the period because that reinforces the fact that they'll stay engaged and continue to pay. And then I'm looking for ways to expand. How do I increase the benefits they're receiving from my services or products? And how do I expand that? Expand that into additional services, expand that into help, expand that into including their larger team, any version on that, what's the expansion? And I might add the expansion is not just about larger money. It's about keeping people more intently engaged. How'd I do, Robbie? Perfect. Perfect. Um, I think one thing that I forgot to mention that's really important as a a sticky engagement tool is community. Uh, You know, a lot of times people say, you know, I came for the learning, but I stayed for the people I met. And you see that a lot in professional services um, organizations, associations, um, you know, where they, they came because they were new to the profession, but then they made really good friends. And now they come back every year to see their friends. Right. And so that's, you know, nobody joins an association, I don't think, to make friends. Um, but it's often a reason cited for why somebody who's at the top of their game continues to come back year after year, even though they could literally be teaching the curriculum themselves. Right. Well, I can imagine that's part of the case in the Bain example that you gave for all these people who are part of the Net Promoter Score group, learning group, that it's not so much we're learning new things from Bain as much as it is I enjoy the people that I meet here and interact with and the friendships that I formed. And that's the reason for continuing that subscription format. Yeah, but- exactly. And they, and they even said that, you know, it's the, one of the things I, I was just talking to Stu Berman, who runs that group, and he was saying that something that surprised him when they started it is the level of candor in the group, that, mm-hmm. that people just kind of, you know, let the proverbial hair down and would say, this is the problem we're dealing with, or this is what's hard for me. And, you know, it's hard to find well-facilitated, trusted groups where you can learn from other people's experiences. And it's so valuable because sometimes, you know, and I know I've had this experience myself in learning, you don't even know what you don't know. And some other person in the class asks a question and you're like, that's a good question. I didn't even think of that. So that can be really valuable as well in any subscription. Having a strong community um, can be a real uh, powerful underpinning of the subscription value. Right. All right, so that's a perfect place to take a break. And I want to come back and ask you, how do we create that community? Because I think that's such an important part. It's what I'm seeing people are looking for in this day. All right, my guest today is Robbie Kalman-Baxter. The book that we're going to talk about next is called The Forever Transaction, though we've been spending a little bit of time talking about our first book called The Membership Economy. And as you've heard, everyone everywhere is thinking about how do we create a recurring revenue model But the secret there is thinking about what's my promise to my customers and how am I going to deliver it and keep them engaged. When we come back, I'm going to talk about this forever transaction. I want to talk a little bit about community and I'm going to talk about things not to do for sure. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Robbie Kelman Baxter. We've been talking about the membership economy and her latest book, The Forever Transaction. Now, Robbie, one of the things that you said in the last segment that just piques my interest is this whole notion about community. And what I'm seeing from everyone I'm talking to everywhere is we've got lots of content pushed out. So lots of subscription services that push out stuff for me. And what people are missing, it seems to me, is that sense of I belong to something bigger, especially as we look at the pandemic era and the isolation that's come from it and that desire to just create that connection. So have you seen things that companies have done that creates this community that works particularly well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you know, when, when you're when you're building community, um, you need to start by remembering that you don't, just like you don't slap a subscription price on whatever products and services you happen to already have and call it a subscription, you don't just open the door to a digital you know, community platform and call it a community. Um, you need to grow it and nurture it and facilitate it. You need to manage for tone. You need to hustle, frankly, to get the early adopters to start posting if it's a digital community. Um, a lot of times, you know, what I've seen work really well is bringing a community from the real world and putting it online. So, for example, if you take a class and then everybody who took that class has a place online to talk about the class. And then when the class is over, they meet once a week to reflect, to share ideas on how they're applying it in their own lives. Um, but the idea is that you've already established the trust and the relationships before you move to online. Um, so that's one technique that can work really well. Um, another way to do it is you have a really big group of people that are already online and to start helping them find kind of areas of focus and have facilitators or team leaders who are not necessarily paid, but recognized for their contribution to the community. Um, you know, bringing in, this has been a trick that user groups have used forever, 
where they take their most loyal, I call them a super user, somebody who spends their own time, money, and other resources to improve the well-being of the other customers or the organization itself. So why would, like my sister is a member of, you know, I always joke the Church of the Holy CrossFit. You know, she does CrossFit for her sport. And, you know, she works full-time. She's a therapist. Her husband works full-time. And yet, they host all these CrossFit events. They recruit people in. They onboard them. They call and check up on them. My sister writes a blog every week that talks about different challenges of being a CrossFitter from a psychological perspective. And they do that because they care so much about the brand and the community. And they're doing it not out of a desire to get paid, but more for a way to connect on a deeper level with the CrossFit community. This, so this brings to mind two things. So if you think about um, the people that respond to users groups, like say, I need to know how to do something on Microsoft or on Zoom for that matter or any place, yeah. there's a users group for almost absolutely everything. And for the most part, people who respond to that are experts and occasionally it's employees, but often it's just members of the community who respond. So it's that kind of experience where there's some value people get in being that super responder. But it also brings to mind a really old practice um, called communities of practice, where I was bringing together people from around the world who were trying to solve the same basic problem and helping them find each other and ask each other more sophisticated questions and get advice. And there's the, one of the things about those communities is they became a very strong community um, with thousands of members sometimes, but it's that belonging that made it actually really work. They were doing it for each other. So it's the same kind of idea here. Absolutely. And what's happening is organizations, uh, businesses, brands are finding it easier and easier to build communities around their content and their products and the problems that they solve. So they're kind of creating their own communities of practice um, it's much easier to do it because you don't have to bring people together physically and right. you don't have to do the finding. They find you and it ends up being one of the greatest tools for retention. So right. it's incredibly valuable. And, you know, there's just been an explosion in online communities um, for, you know, everything from, you know, baby food to heavy equipment. There is, you know, a community built around it. Right. Reminds me of one of my uh, colleagues was working in a company for RIT dye, you know, the dye that you use to make dye clothes or change colors or do tie-dye kits. I guess most people have seen it that way and found that there was a whole online community of people who were trading secrets about things to do with this. Needless to say, that's really good for the brand when you find it and use it and so on. Same kind of idea I think we're talking about here. Yeah. And All right. the mistake, the mistake, I just say, the mistake that a lot of companies make with their community, and you know, I know that it sounds like I did not do this, um, but they think people want to talk about the product. Let's talk about dye. And that is not what people want to talk about in most cases. They don't want to talk about the product. They want to talk about what the product lets them do. Right. Let's t- right. And so when you're thinking about it, like, I don't want to talk, if I have a baby and I come to the baby food site, I don't really want to talk about baby food. I might want to talk about baby nutritional health, but I probably want to talk about just being a parent and how hard it is, right? And trading secrets and tips, maybe not even just about food, but about 
everything about having a six-month-old or a two-year-old. So really, if you're going to build a community, put yourself in, you know, go back to your forever promise and say, what is the promise? Oh, you know, Wanda and Robbie are, you know, both people who want to have professional clothes in their closet. They're professional women. They probably want to talk to each other about work stuff. Yeah, right, right. It reminds me also, um, Hallmark cards had also discovered that they had this accidental group of grandparents who turned out to be phenomenally useful for both their product development as well as insights and all that. What do grandparents want to talk about? Being grandparents. <laughs> the same kind of idea. Not necessarily about sending cards, but turned out to be useful. And that's old enough that I don't think I'm giving away anybody's secrets anywhere. So you said already one of the mistakes that people make with communities. Let's talk some more about mistakes that people make with this forever promise. And I notice in your book, you've got lovely section about all the kind of mistakes. So just walk us through a few of those and what happens. Okay. And, and maybe, Wanda, you can tell me which of these you've experienced. <laughs> so the, the worst one is hiding the cancel button, right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. You can you can come anytime you like. You can, what is it like the Hotel California? You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of companies that that logically come to the conclusion that if you make it harder for people to cancel, you increase your lifetime customer value. Right. If I can't cancel, I stay for an extra month because right. I don't have enough time to figure it out right now. Right. Um, that destroys brand equity. And it puts your customers in an adversarial relationship with you where they're, you know, always trying to figure out a way to get out of the deal because you're trying to lock them in. So that's one huge mistake. Well, and I can imagine those customers then say to their friends, oh, don't do this because you can never get out of it, as opposed to, oh, you should try it. You might like it. So yeah, certainly I have experienced that when it's annoying. When I have to call customer service and wait online to get a subscription canceled, I am done with that company forever. Yeah. And you're like, once I get out, I'm not coming back. Um, And in fact, the new best practice is to have a pause button so that the minute you think of it, you can hit pause and you won't be charged again. And you also don't have to think about, wait, am I going to lose something by canceling? Am I going to lose my data? Am I going to lose my history? Am I going to lose, you know, my connections, my relationships, whatever that is. That's the best practice. The worst practice is hiding the cancel button. Okay. Um, that's a big issue. Another issue that companies make is um, they take the products and services they already have and just try to make that a subscription And when, when it doesn't make sense. So like an extreme example of that might be if I said, you know, people seem to really like my book, The Forever Transaction, I'm going to have a Forever Transaction subscription. And you have access to read this book for $10 a month, right? And the book costs, you know, most places it's somewhere between $18 and $30. So in a couple of months, you've paid the cost of the book. Why would you keep subscribing? You're going to say, well, gosh, I don't want to subscribe to a book. I want to, I might as well just own it and have it on my shelf. Right. Um, And now it's different if I said, well, there's the book and there's courses and there's access to me and there's a mastermind group and there's custom consulting, then it might be an interesting subscription that helps a company or an organization you know, figure this out. But to just offer one book is not a subscription. So a lot of times companies, you know, offer something that doesn't make sense. Um, The content is too narrow. The services are too episodic. Um, One woman came to me at one talk that I gave and she was a, um, she, she was an, she said, you know, my subscription, people are only staying for a month or two and then they cancel. So I'm thinking of doing annual subscription only. 
And I asked her what she did. And she said, I have a potty training subscription. <laughs> right. And like, it's funny, right? Because, you know, if your kid isn't potty trained in two or three months, you're going to stop and maybe try another time or just give up. But you don't need a subscription for years. Right. And it just doesn't lend itself. Now, if she had changed it to helping you take your child through all of the major milestones, mm-hmm. that might justify a subscription. So that's another big problem. Okay. All right. I can see that that's a three-month subscription and it's a one and done, and then we'll go on to the next parrot or some version of that one for that particular thing. You know, when I started this podcast and said, everybody everywhere is thinking about a subscription service, you have now convinced me everybody everywhere is thinking about a subscription service. All right. So hiding the cancel button is a mistake and offering a service that's the same thing you can buy in other places in other means is not about, it doesn't add anything extra to the customer experience. All right. So those are two no's. What's my third don't do? Um, I think expecting magical results immediately, which is probably true of a lot of transformations that organizations do, but you know, when COVID happened, um, you know, the, the businesses that were using subscription pricing already seemed to be the most resilient of all the business models. The ones, if you look at the companies that are really thriving right now, a lot of them are subscriptions. And so what would happen is people, I got a lot of calls in March and April from people who'd say, quick, quick, I need subscription revenue. Right. Can you help me set up a subscription? Because quick, quick, I need some money. And subscriptions are a golden goose, right? It keeps, you know, the great thing about it is that it keeps giving you revenue. Once you've invested and built out your subscription, the money comes, you know, every month, every year, like clockwork and clockwork in a very predictable way. But what it does not do is get you rich quick. Okay. So I think there's a lot of organizations that either, you know, entrepreneurs who expect to get the revenue right away and don't have time or money to invest or in a big company, I've seen this a lot. You know, I work with, you know, I tend to work with larger organizations where they designate a team to move the company to subscription. And then they say, and we can't lose any money and we can't lose any customers and we have to keep growing and you have a revenue target from year one. Right. That makes it almost impossible to be successful. So this is the expected to grow slowly over time. Yes. And also clearly I heard from you, you've got to invest some resources in it to get it yeah. to be a promise that people would actually find attractive. Yeah. They, there's this idea, um, I, I forget the guy's name, J.B. Wood, his name, J.B. Wood has this image, he calls it swallowing the fish, where your costs, when you move to subscription, your costs go up because you're doing things in a different way. And your revenue goes down because instead of charging, you know, the customer the full amount that you're ever going to get from them in that first transaction to taking it in little bits over time. So, you know, you can see like your revenue goes like this. And then at one point it crosses back the other way and then you have a fish. So you have to kind of live through that process, um, which in a larger organization might take years. I was going to ask, how long does that typically take for a large organization? Let's assume that we figured out what the promise is, that we have the target market right, that we have, we're findable, the pricing is all good, that stuff is good. How long does it actually really take to build a substantial revenue base? So from idea, from inception, you know, we're going to do our first experiment to profitability, um, you know, four to six years for like a software company or a big uh, content company, a newspaper or, um, a, you know, video, you know, a company that makes, uh, that makes videos. 
uh, or music. It, that's that's about the the range that I would think about. And what's what's noticeable is that when you talk to venture capitalists, they often have a seven year threshold for right. for monetizing the business for for getting out of a you know for a successful exit. So you see, like that's what they're expecting. It takes a little while. You build this, you know, I'm calling it a golden goose, but you build this recurring revenue model. It takes a while, and then it's like ka-ching, 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 and that's why people are willing to pay such a premium for a proven subscription model. Okay, four to six years. Wow, I would have said two to three, and I'm sure people listening to this will say, "Ah, oh, no, 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 we can get this earlier." But it takes a while to build that community and build the offer. I would assume. Yeah, and new tech. I mean, this is. I'm talking about a big company. I'm not. Right. If, if you're if you're a solopreneur and you're saying I want to build a subscription around my expertise, you know, I bet you'll start seeing results in six months to a year, really good results. Um, but I'm talking about you know a big enterprise software company or you know a big publishing house moving right. to this model. You have to have new technology, new corporate culture, um, right. new business processes. You have to educate your investors in the public markets. I mean, there's a bunch of things you have to do. Um, before you get to that new normal. And the distinguishing of the service. All right, so I have three mistakes. Hiding the cancel button, um, not offering what we already have someplace else as a subscription, and then three, expecting kind of magical returns too quickly. So we're in a large company four to six years to really see a big return. What other kind of mistakes do you see people make? Um, The other mistake that I see, which is kind of tied to the waiting for returns, is sacrificing long-term revenue streams for a short-term hit. So what happens here is you have a, a CEO who has a number to hit by the end of the quarter. And they, you know, if, if, if I, I keep coming back to Netflix because it's such a known model, you pop in a late fee and you hit your number. Yeah. Right. You, you put one X, you're like, oh, we just put one extra fee. Our subscribers, they won't even notice. They love us. They don't even really look at the billing anymore. So let's just put it, let's call it, Let's call it a, you know, happy customer fee. And, you know, they stick something in or they do something else. They, they sell something that's not that great or not ready um, in order to hit a short-term number. And as a result, they hurt their long-term revenue stream. Um, and I see that happening a lot. Um, and, and interestingly, or something that I found interesting, is that often the best students of the subscription world are um, the owners of closely held businesses because they're thinking about their legacy. Right. And they're thinking, I want this company to continue to be profitable for my children right, um, or into my retirement. Right. And so when you think that way, you're very careful about, I want to protect the model that's working. And you're not as concerned with harvesting quickly. Like if you're a CEO or, you know, a, a, an executive, and you have a number to hit for this quarter, and you get a big bonus, you're going to, I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked in an organization like that, yeah. but if, if you put somebody on a bonus track, they're going to do whatever it takes, even or if it leaves a mess. for get dinged if they don't get that bonus. So yes. Um, right. Absolutely. And and they may be gone. You know, the other thing is the damage that they're doing to the company by, you know, folk getting that, it's, it's, you know, the person who's going to have to pay for it is their, their successor. Right. How many times do we see that one? All right. Now, Robbie, I'm going to venture off into something that is not necessarily your area, but it's one that fascinates me. So we do all of this in terms of the forever transaction with our customers. 
But we don't often stop to say forever transaction for our employees. Okay, now I am not talking about going back to the days of lifetime employment. That is just not not smart. But do you ever see clients turning this back in to a question about the employees? As in, what could we be doing for our employees that would make this work, make it more of a longer term transaction? And I'll give you the heads up. We have to do this one quickly. So do you see that? Is anybody talking about that from employees? Yes, um, and increasingly so. And it kind of follows this whole move to employer brand, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. You think about your employees, especially here in Silicon Valley, your employees are the hardest resource to get. So you have yep. to attract them. You have to onboard them so that they're as efficient as possible right away, right? You got right. to get them working. And then you've got to be looking for the signals of what might make them want to leave. Okay. So there's a lot of companies that are kind of thinking about that. Um, there's a lot that are explicit about what the promise is. So for example, Reed Hastings has a book out right now, the the CEO of Netflix. Um, And he talks about how he always wants A players doing A work. Um, And he says, we are not a family. We are a sports team. And if we are not winning championships, we are going to change the lineup. And so he was kind of famous for firing people, firing really good people. And, um, you know, his promise was we're going to win championships and you're going to, you're going to be on a championship team. Whenever you come here, you're also going to work your tail off and you're also going to make a lot of money. Um, And so it's a very clear promise, right? It's not forever, but it's clear for as long as you're an A player contributing to our championship team, we will give you all these things. And when you leave, you get a good recommendation letter. Um, The other thing that I think a lot of um, employers do that is kind of in this spirit is thinking really hard about an alumni association. Yeah. What do you do? You have all these people. McKinsey is great at this, the consulting firm. All these people out in the world who are familiar with your process and turn into buyers when they leave. How do we build relationships with them so that they continue to feel connected to us? And what can we continue to do for them to justify loyalty? Yeah. There's so much about this that's happened for millennials because we, you know, I've talked about millennials wanting to leave the organization, but the notion is to keep a loose tie with them because if you can keep connected with an alumni network or some other way, they're customers, they're friends or potential employees if they have had a good experience here. They are referral network for a whole host of things. So thinking about how you build that alumni network or employee network, if you will, um, to help people fulfill a little more of their own promises at work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. I think there's a lot more on this that we need to begin to think about, but it's an interesting idea to take the notion of the membership economy or the forever transaction and shift it inwards to say, what does that mean for us internally? Okay, Robbie, this is terribly unfair. I like to ask everybody at the very end about a time you had to get out of your comfort zone and what was the secret to your success. You got one minute. (laughs) Uh, I think I mentioned it. I got laid off when I was on maternity leave. Um, I had a new baby. I had a toddler. I had a new mortgage that my husband and I both needed to work really hard to cover every month. And I had to go out and figure out how to hit that number with the 28 hours of childcare a week that I had um, and build a, build a practice. And that was really scary. And I remembered thinking, you know, what if I go out and reach out to all my friends and all my professional contacts and then I fail? 
Um, what if I disappoint? What if a friend hires me and I let them down? What if no one hires me and then I have to hang up my shingle three weeks after I, you know, put it out in the first place? Um, so that was a very uncomfortable time to get out there and sort of sell myself and, you know, not have a brand behind me. Um, and I think for me, it was having, knowing that my family depended on it. You know, they say that women uh, are much more aggressive um, and, and confident about negotiating uh, when they're doing it on behalf of a third party. Right. And that That's was great. really my case. Robbie, sadly, we're out of time. My guest today, Robbie Kelman Baxter. Her website is RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. And the book, the most recent book is The Forever Transaction. Robbie, thanks for being a guest today. Thanks for having me. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.